Welcome to the Seminole Wars. In this podcast, we explore how the Seminole Wars came to be, how they were fought, and how they still resonate some two centuries later. I am your host, Patrick Swan, and our show is a production of the Seminole Wars Foundation, found online at www.seminolewars.us. We are recording today from the homestead of the Foundation in Bushnell, Florida. Thank you for listening. Hello and welcome. The Florida coastline has long been dotted with concrete or stone behemoths pointing to the sea to protect the designated port or area. These are the legacy of old Spanish and modern American times. In between, there are the wooden forts of territorial and early U.S. statehood periods in Florida. These were army forts and they sprouted up quickly from the landscape before quickly wilting when no longer needed. Today, replica forts replace some of these, but overall, the forts are gone, and even their former locations are suspect. In this episode, the author of Florida Forts on the Edge of Empire, Zach Zacharias, presents a stirring tale of some of the state's great fortifications still standing. Everything from Pensacola to the Dry Tortugas. While our focus, of course, remains the Seminole Wars, Zach still explores the legacy forts the U.S. inherited upon Spain's formal surrender of the territory in 1821. How many forts, you ask? Zach tells us that Florida had approximately 400 forts. His book, blessedly, details only the roughly 13 forts you can still visit as a tourist. Zach is the senior curator of education and history at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach, Florida, and he's taught Florida history topics for over 25 years. Zach Zacharias, Welcome to the Seminole Wars. Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be here. Very exciting. Thank you. Zach, so you've written a book about forts in Florida. What's the purpose of a fort? So the purpose of a fort is a sense of position. So it's usually going to defend a piece of land. It's really not an offensive weapon where it's going to go out and be offensive. It's going to defend a certain territory or region. And it's a very loose definition. So sometimes you can take a house and stockade it up and that's to qualify as a fort. Uh, you can get really technical about it, but uh, it's basically any type of a defensive position that's going to be military involved. And what type of forts dot the Florida landscape? At least here where we are in the United States, there's three systems of forts. The first, you know, these are going way back. The first system of forts is usually a wooden fort. They rot, termites catch fire. They're kind of heated at a lot of times. Second, then what ends up having, you have a second tier of forts, which is usually a kind of a combination of earth and wood, which is better. Obviously, if you have earthen mounds, you'll protect you more from cannon fire. And then as a result of the Fort McHenry, Fort McHenry, Star-Spangled Banner fame, 1814, War of 1812. That fort survived a massive bombardment. We realized that the banner that yet waved in the morning was the American banner and not British banner. And so that set off the alarm, said, hey, we need to upgrade to fortifications, and we're going to make all masonry structures from here on out. And that was the third system of forts. That's sort of how they do it in a nutshell. So what's amazing about Florida is it really is the land of forts, and historians not sure how many forts there are in Florida. There were obviously the first forts in Florida were Spanish, and they were numerous wherever they were, wherever they were occupying, they usually had a fort. So you might have some in Tallahassee 
at the mission there at St. Louis. He had uh, St. Lucie. It was Fort St. Lucie, of course, St. Augustine. Had 10 forts there at one point, the 10th Fort Beef Dio. So they had numerous forts, but the total number of Florida is estimated around 400, with about almost 200 of those being Seminole War forts. Most of the time, they just occupied forts, and they might do upgrades. They did some upgrades at the Castillo San Marcos. They did occupy the Forte, Fort Matanzas. If you were going to be stationed there, that was a 12-year rotation that you would be there, which is pretty ridiculous. Now, there's a fort uh, kind of in the middle of nowhere called uh, a sister fort to Castillo San Marcos, which is called Castillo San Marcos de Apalachi, sister fort to the one in St. Augustine, and that's about 20 miles south of Tallahassee on the confluence of the St. Marks and Wakulla River, but they never occupied that one. Of course, they had forts in Pensacola as well. So, I mean, there's so many forts, it kind of makes your head spin around. De Apalachi was an abandoned fort that the Spanish built, and they never occupied it. They, I guess they just need a reason. They must have had some reason for it, or they wouldn't have built it in the first place. The Spanish had reasons for occupying it because they had missions up in there and they were supplying a lot of food for St. Augustine, which was never self-sufficient. It was not a sustainable settlement. And so they always had to rely on the Spanish crown to give them subsidies and the Native Americans, especially the Appalachee, where they were growing a lot of corn. And so that fort protected that interior and also worked as a port to sail ships out around to other areas for the Spanish and in around the state to St. Augustine and across land. So... Really interesting fort with an incredible history. One of the things about the Spanish forts is they were made of stone, hard to burn down. So the burning of forts, a lot of the Spanish forts were stone construction, so they would be hard to burn down. Hmm, the stone was hard to come by. Must have been a good reason for building them in stone. Well, they were stone because they were being attacked by pirates and English or the French at times, so they needed bigger fortifications so that they didn't lose the territory, so they didn't lose their occupation, especially in St. Augustine and other places. They tried all these wooden forts and were burned and attacked, but eventually they realized, if we really want to hold on to this long term, we got to have a stone fortification. So once you get a stone fortification, you, they're never really taken again, those cities. So. Yeah, the town is saved. The archaeological record supports that, especially in St. Augustine. When you had wooden forts, the city moved away from the stone forts because when pirates attacked like Drake or Robert Searles or the English attacked, they would run into the woods, live with the Tamuquan Indians. But once stone fort was built in the archaeological record, you see that the city moved back closer to the fort because it could run into the fort for safety. Contrast that with the Seminole Wars. In the Seminole Wars, you had most of these forts were wars, and they were thrown up hastily and very quickly. A lot more supply depots, obviously, and a lot of folks listening probably know that. So they were easily burned and looted when they were sometimes defeated, or if they were abandoned, they would go right in almost immediately, not long after, and torch those forts. I'm sure that there was a symbolic presence to them that we got to get rid of this thing. I mean, this is, I can imagine myself being a Seminole, and they finally abandoned the fort. Would I want to go burn it down and get that thing out of my territory? Yeah, I would. I don't want that as a symbol. Plus, they can come back and reoccupy it. So the building materials for the forest is interesting. Obviously, in the Seminole, there is an abundance of longleaf pine and oak. Most of those were going to be wooden. There's just a never-ending supply, and they could be thrown up with variant degrees of the number of block houses you're going to put into them and how long they think they need to be in the area. So if they probably going to be a supply depot, probably put up, you know, with not a great deal of attention, but if it was gonna be something like Fort King in Ocala, which acted like a headquarters, it's a huge fort. They put a lot more effort into building a quality fort that was gonna be a little bit more sustainable over the long term. We're talking about Spanish or the Civil War forts that dot the coastline. 
yeah, those are really expensive forts to build. They were usually done on slave labor. The American forts were done with slave labor. But they were usually a gentleman's agreement. They couldn't be written into the government contract because that had been banned. So a lot of it was just done on a gentleman's agreement. And so some of these forts were started with slave labor, like Fort Clinch, and then finished with free labor. When you go to a place like Fort Clinch on Amelia Island, just outside Fernandine Beach, which I highly recommend to go, you'll see different colors of bricks. So those bricks, the early bricks were from St. Mary's from a brick factory. And then uh, when the Union took over, they were from Pennsylvania or New York, wherever. And so you'll see slightly different colored bricks in some of these. Some of these forts, especially the ones on the coast that were these third system of forts, were never... Um, never completed. So Fort Jefferson down in the dark was, was never completed. It was so massive. They never, but that was done with slave labor as well, but it's never finished. So, and they took a long time. I mean, the Castillo probably 20 some odd years, if not more than that, uh, they were not easily uh, built quickly. They were massive amounts of labor and resources. So like Fort Clinch, everything had to be brought in, nails, water, food. There's, it's on a 13-acre island. That's you know down there on the Dry Tortugas, 70 miles west of Key West. So some of these were pretty ambitious programs or forts that they were trying to build. They were key locations from what they thought. So the, like Fort Jefferson and the Dry Tortugas was kind of an extension of the Monroe Doctrine. Uh, they didn't want Europeans to take those islands and the European nations, and it was to protect the shipping coming out of the Mississippi, an extension of our power. Like, look here, we've got this massive fort, and we're a new player. <laughs> the Spanish fort, or at least at St. Augustine, was to protect the treasure fleet heading back to Spain? That's exactly right. So the Gulf Stream, which is one of the fastest currents in the world, starts to veer off in and around St. Augustine and the Canaveral area. starts to veer off. So the treasure fleets would get into that current, just like other animals do, and they can move much quickly. That settlement, St. Augustine, was to protect the shipping interests and the treasure fleets coming out of the Western Hemisphere there. And they could salvage them and protect them from pirates. First ones that they threw out were the French up there at Fort Caroline. The Spanish threw them out under Pedro Menendez, and then they settled St. Augustine with a series of about nine wooden forts, and then eventually the 10th fort, the Castillo that you see today with the Coquina, which by luck had cannonballs just bounce off and it really saved it. Uh, the rifled cannon would have obliterated it, but that was a later down the road, just after the Civil War. It never saw any action in the Civil War. So yes, this these forts, especially the Castillo-San Marcos, was designed to protect shipping against Spanish enemies because everybody wanted a piece of the action. Spain was pulling out a great deal of wealth, and they were using that wealth to fund wars. It seems a paradox that St. Augustine was not the thriving city that one would think based on its location. St. Augustine was such a destitute car, they would restock in Havana, and that's where they would stop. Think of Havana like our Atlanta, the airport, like a hub, and everybody stops there. That's what Havana was wanting. So if you wanted anything, if you wanted jewelry, furniture, your portrait done, whatever, that was the crown jewel of the Spanish Empire. So that's where they would load and then head up the Gulf Stream. And then you had Warren Presidio, or Outpost, which was St. Augustine that was the protector. And in case something happened, they could send out salvage. But, you know, it's interesting. Florida's really considered in the Spanish times as a punishment. If you were a Spanish soldier and you kind of got in trouble, you could be sentenced to Florida. So it was not a good place to go. All right, Zach, take us up with forts to the American time, just 200 years ago. 
forts that were built for the U.S. Army were some 200 of them, and they are scattered over the entire state, all the way down Miami, all the way to the West Coast, wherever the Seminoles were fleeing to, because they were always basically being chased. They had to build these supply forts, so they built a chain of supply forts about 20 miles apart from each other. They acted as also a safe haven, so if you were lost or you got separated from your attachment there, you would be one day's walk. A lot of our towns today are named after some of these Seminole Wars. I grew up in Miami, and that was called Fort Dallas. Imagine if that had not been changed. It had been called Fort Dallas. We had Fort Lauderdale. We had Fort Drum, Fort Meade, <laughs> Fort Pierce, Fort Myers. Oh, what a great story Fort Myers is, man. That's an amazing story right there. Once war ended, pioneers wanted to be near the safety of them so that it would be protection as well. So a lot of these towns erupted in around these forts for safety reasons, obviously. Pioneers liked to settle near forts. The area had already been cleared out because the soldiers needed an unobstructed line of fire against any attacks on the fort. That's right, yeah, you need a clear line of shot. Also, if you have settlers in there, you can trade with the soldiers. You already have a trading partner. You can trade with those soldiers there, and you have the safety as well. Using the Seminole War era, they were burned down, or sometimes, like in Fort King, in Ocala, the local people dismantled the fort and used the lumber to build the town and build buildings. So sometimes it's dismantled, especially in the Seminole War, as I said, by local people, or it's been burned down. We don't ordinarily think of the forts as romantic endeavors, but they might facilitate some. A lot of women who lived in the pioneer times, a lot of women looked to want to marry a soldier, or especially an officer, they could if they were still in the area. There wasn't a lot of pickings for young women who were born into families and they need to find a husband. And so if there were soldiers, that was definitely high on the market to hear about the life of women. Imagine if you're an 18, 19-year-old woman, you've been living on a pioneer, you're now an adult and you grew up, and there's a fort nearby and there's, there's men there, and that would be a place where you could find a date, <laughs> or maybe find a husband. How widespread were these forts on the Florida Peninsula? These coastal forts more on the Panhandle, west side down the Keys were really important. Key West was the largest city. It had a very vibrant economy. It's the gateway there to the Caribbean and to Cuba. So you had cigar manufacturing early on. You had the wrecking business was there as well. It really developed very, very quickly. The United States government obviously is upgrading these coastal fortifications with these brick forts. And you get Fort Zachary Taylor built there to protect the city. And then swinging around up into the Pensacola area. Now, Pensacola is very important. We get the deep water port. It has a naval yard there where they can build ships. It has a naval yard where they can repair ships. And it also allows easy access to the interior of the country right there. And it's very fertile land as well, deep water port. So that was a strategic place. The Spanish were there. The British took over there. The French came in there. Everybody came in there. It's the land of forts. Pensacola's the land of forts. A lot of forts. But eventually, they built a bunch of fortifications there. And the big one there is Fort Pickens, the only one they built on the barrier island. And that's the only island, or, or at least one of the only forts that was built on a barrier island besides Fort Dade, which is a much more modern fortification. We're talking about Civil War times. One of the few ones built on a barrier island. And just a covering Fort Clinch is as well. But a lot of these forts in Pensacola area were built on the mainland. And then Pickens was built out there on the Barrier Island, which was the only one that was done there. And that could bring a, a crossfire on any ship trying to come in to the port. That you would have just received a massive crossfire there. Some of the forts in Pensacola, if you sailed close to the fort, they couldn't fire down upon you because you were too close. Where the, the Fort Barrancas is or Fort St. Carlos, the angle was all messed up. So you could just sail right under the fort and they couldn't hit you. Those things had to be adjusted. And that's where you start to get Pickens and Fort uh, McCree and Fort Barrancas where they make these adjustments. 
especially or maybe obviously with the stone forts takes a lot of resources and a lot of time to construct them what becomes of these forts when they've outlived their useful lifespan there's a couple of scenarios that happens with these forts what happens on these coastal forts where they're more masonry structures is they're put on what's called caretaker status and then if there's a flare-up then you can just call in the local militia so they'll have one or two people they're maintaining the fort some of them are just outright abandoned. So at times Fort Clinch was just completely abandoned. Fort Pickens just completely abandoned. The Castillo had a caretaker just before the Civil War, one guy. Fort Clinch just before the Civil War had two soldiers there guarding it and those caretakers. I mean, they pull weeds, they do whatever they're going to do. Probably not doing a whole lot. I mean, how can you do a whole lot when you've got such a giant structure? But once things flare up, and you bring the militia back in, then you start either moving new armaments and you start restocking the fort and making repairs so it gets ready for war. And so this has happened at a couple times with these forts. Fort Clinch is an example of that. Fort Pickens, you know, they upgraded the armaments in the Spanish-American War in 1898 with new battle-in-place cannons. They're called disappearing cans that rose up, fired, and then came back down. They're called these Crozier Buffington armaments. A lot of times, they're just plain abandoned. Some were just abandoned and just left to rot and later found out by archaeologists later on down the road. Some were made into state parks. So a lot of these forts, we don't have any information on them. You scant evidence that, well, this is the name, but we don't really know anything more. How and why were forts different from each other? You'd have to follow the geology. At Fort Castillo... The Appalachie, it was on a spit of land that made a triangle, so they made a triangular fort. You couldn't do the typical star fort, that bastion system where you had four bastions in a star formation like you see at San Marcos. You had to follow the lay of the land and uh, follow the geology. So the geology is going to drive a lot of times the type of fort you're going to build. So, But there are certain cookie-cutter ideas on how you're going to build it. Fort King's huge. There's a replica fort there in Ocala now. It's it's massive. If you compare that to Fort Christmas, which is a much smaller fort, they had two blockhouses there. That one, you can actually go and visit. Obviously, these are replicas of Seminole War forts. So you build it to whatever geology allows you to do. We know Seminole were not building such forts. But what about occupying them when the Army abandoned them? That's a very interesting question. So they usually did not occupy these forts. The one that they did occupy was this amazing fort, the Castillo de San Marcos de Apalachi. Native Americans were not really known for siege warfare, and they did siege warfare there in the middle of the Panhandle, middle of nowhere, very remote today still. It is a state park that Castillo de Appalachie. They laid siege warfare, but they were also under the leadership of an Englishman named Bowles. Augustus Bowles was the leader, so he knew how to do that. So usually they won't do it on their own unless there's somebody who knows how to do that. They laid siege and they won, and they took over the fort, and they created their own quasi-little nation called the State of Muskegee, and they raised their own flag. But eventually, a lot of betrayal happened. The Spanish countered and fought back with a larger fleet. It was quite an embarrassment for what they considered to be horrible. Of course, they always called them savages. They weren't what they called them, sadly. And they said it's an embarrassment for savages to lay siege warfare. Our Europeans starve us out, and we had to capitulate it. So like the Spanish from Pensacola, the governor said, we're putting together a big fleet and amphibious assault, basically, and we're going to take that fort back. And they... So William Augustus Bowles, of a sort of this border ruffian, he was from uh, Baltimore. 
He married a Creek daughter of a chief named uh, Chief Perryman, married his daughter, learned the language, wanted to create this whole sanctuary for all the southern tribes. And the big battle that happened to them, I mean, this is a two-hour lecture practically, but we'll try to – he tried to create this whole new state called the state of Muskegee, and that's one that where he actually took – they took over the fort. A lot of times, they're on the move, and they're – when the fort is abandoned, then they basically would burn that fort because they probably just don't want the return of those soldiers to come back because then they could bring more soldiers. So it really makes sense for them to destroy it. And that's what they did. A lot of them did not know how to do cannon fire either. Well, at times they've tried, it was very difficult for them to understand and how to effectively operate a cannon. They very few of that. A lot of times the area in and around there is cleared. So you might see it today and let's just say it's a replica fort. You might say, oh, well, this looks nice. And, and But the force has grown back up around it. So, but back in the day, a lot of times they cleared that force. A lot of that force was to build the stockade or the fort because they want a clear line of shot. They want to see approaching the fortification as well. Any type of an assault coming in an open field and you're facing gunfire, rifle fire, and cannon fire makes sense why the Seminoles didn't usually do a uh, massive attack on a fort. They're not great in numbers to begin with, right? So outside of the war, it's probably a total of 5,000 souls, you know, an amalgam of southern tribes, mostly Creek, obviously. There's a reason a fort is affected, and the reason they build them is because they are hard to take in open warfare. So that, otherwise, they wouldn't build them. And for the Americans, anyway, regardless of how big the forts were, the troops still bedded down outside the stockade gates. If they did that, that's when you said that the tents, because even at Fort Pickens in the Civil War, they had a whole huge Union encampment called Billy Wilson's Zouaves that camped a mile. They were like a militia unit pulled out of New York of a bunch of ragtag, untrained soldiers. You know, they were like pickpockets and drunkards and homeless people, according to the historical record. And they basically put him in a militia. Harvey Brown, who was the commander, like, I don't want them mixing with my professional soldiers. So they got to camp a mile east of the fort in tents. Well, they got attacked eventually, and they were routed. And that started off a huge bombardment in Pensacola in the, the rebels and the Union. Fort Matanzas, it had become so dilapidated that the soldiers had to camp outside. And it got hit by lightning, and it cracked in half, them horribly. And so near the end, the Spanish were camping outside the fort. And if you have extra troops, you can't get everybody into the logging fort. So there's no accommodation, so they're going to have to camp outside the fort anyway. So depending on how many troops you're moving in through the area or passing through the area. What was the protocol for naming these forts? The naming of these forts is interesting. Obviously, a lot of the Spanish forts is named after saints. The Seminole War era... Or they might be named after King. So Fort Carolina is named after King Charles. Actually, he was a little boy at the time. And so that's named after a king or a ruler. So that's not unusual. Most of these forts were named after maybe the person who built them. But a lot of times they're named after the person who died, a soldier who was killed in battle. Fort Christmas. Okay, so that was Bill Christmas Day. So you see the name on that. But many of them, like Fort Lane, which was the next fort over from Fort Christmas, was named after a fallen soldier. Sometimes it might be named after the area. So you had a Fort Volusia here in Volusia County on the St. John's River. There's no rhyme or reason, but usually it's after a fallen comrade or the geographic area or after a war hero. So Fort Clinch, named after some war hero. Fort Pickens is named after Revolutionary War hero. Fort Jefferson, obviously named after our president. So a lot of times they're named after men who either fallen or powerful men like kings or president as well. So they could be just named for the commander. Fort Dade, obviously we have multiple Fort Dade. So that's the Dade massacre. We all know when the natives won, it was a massacre. Of course, if we won, it was a great victory. But Fort Dade, that was basically killed almost every soldier except I think for two. They were ambushed. 
the big fort day that you go out and see today is, if you believe it or not, Spanish-American War Fort out on Egmont Key at the entry Tampa Bay. Uh, that's the Fort Dade, and it's a that's a modern day fort built 1890 of cement. Now several gun emplacements with those disappearing cannons, and that still named after Fort Dade. And then we got the County of Dade, the massacre at Dade. So this must have gotten a lot of press at the time, and it must have stirred a lot of emotions in the country, or at least within the military, that they would honor those soldiers that were killed at the Dade battlefield. Of course, it's the Dade battlefield as well. So there's. Dade was an important event. They've used the names multiple times. The first four day, not that far, I believe right from Bushnell. So a lot of times, these forts, wooden fort, again, usually they're given an area. They don't always know exactly where the fort's location is, but they'll put up a historical marker saying that Fort Dade or Fort Butler or whatever it is, is in this general area. But they don't always know exactly where it is. Like for Fort Christmas, there's a replica fort, but the real fort actually has been identified, and it's about two miles away. That's how far away it is, two miles. Day was a shocking event. And so you can see how they would name lots of things to honor that, and probably used as a battle cry, most likely, if you think about it, for the U.S. Army. We think of our first battle cry as Remember the Maine when it blew up in Havana. But I would say if for Florida, it could have been Dade that was the battle cry, why they're naming so many things Dade this. Yeah, there's a lot of these forts they don't even know anything about. Someone just had numbers. So there's just so many of these forts, you just can never know all of them. When I wrote this book on these forts, I did ones that you can actually go and see because some of them, there's no way you could cover all of them. <laughs> a lot of these forts were used as bases of operation to go out and do sorties in and around the area. So like Fort King, although Wiley Thompson was, killed by Osceola outside of the fort somewhere within the mile area or two. But they really weren't ever fully attacked in any type of frontal assault. I know the one in, down there in Wakala County, which is the, the Appalachian, was one of the few forts where there was a huge siege going on there. So siege warfare wasn't. But Fort Myers was a very interesting fort because that was a Seminole War fort. And that saw action in Civil War with African troops, Union troops that were stationed there. And southernmost battle using African troops is at Fort Myers. And uh, there was all types of cannon fire going on there. So even though that was a Seminole fort, it had been reconditioned. There was a battle there with the Civil War because they reoccupied that. Nobody knows where that fort is today. Some of these other forts, I, I would tell you the biggest fort that saw action would have been Fort Pickens. And so that was probably November 22nd and 23rd, I think, of 81. You had 8,000 Confederate troops on the mainland of Pensacola occupying Forts McCree, Fort Barrancas, the Naval Yard, plus in the sandbag embattlements everywhere up and down the coast of the bay there. And then you had Pickens. That night, the Union law 5,000 rounds over those positions. You had ships. They're also just off the coast there. They bombarded Fort McRae with the new rifled cannon, and Fort McCree obliterated into smithereens. Fort Barrancas had been reinforced with sandbags, and it took some damage, but not that much. So 5,000 rounds launched is really your biggest battle in the Seminole War here, at least early on until you get to the um, Lusty Battle. So early on, no. You're right. Yeah, yeah. Perrine. Yeah, I grew up not too far from Perrine down there. So Lighthouse is one here in Volusia County. Pontiac was attacked. I know down there in Cubas King was at Cape Florida. They were attacked. They were easy fodder. Any type of pioneers on remote locations were easy fodder. They would attack something if they knew it was easily defeated. They would scout out the area. I want to back up to that Fort Pickens. Fort Pickens lobbed 5,000 rounds of Confederate positions. 
And then Fort Broncos and McRae only go up 2,000 rounds. The next day, millions and millions of fish floated up in Pensacola Bay, dead from the percussions. And then the Confederates evacuated Pensacola. They basically lost. Then the Union took over Pensacola for the rest of the world. That's really the first big battle in Florida. Well, the Battle of Santa Rosa Island. And then, of course, until you get to Olusi, which is both a lot more land for forts firing back. And sometimes you had to move the cannons back towards the city because your threat's no longer coming from sea. It's coming from the land. Zachary Taylor had to do that down in Key West. They had to move the cans to face Key West because they were faced out towards the ocean because that was a Confederate sympathetic town and they were afraid of an attack from the city. <laughs> so, so the You haven't covered any forts in the Everglades. Were there any? The problem with forts in the Everglades is soggy ground, is high water, and then moving in and out, you'd have to build causeway after causeway and bridges after bridges to go over all these numerous creeks to get into a really, really remote area. That's home ground for them. Like, it's home base. When you get into the Everglades, you're kind of in home base. I know they did pursue them in the Everglades. Building a fortification probably just wouldn't last very long. Plus, you know, you have dry season and you have wet season. And dry season, fire runs rampant. We burn a fort. And the forts, you know, they took a lot of effort to build, even if they were just simple stockades. You still got to go down and cut down all these trees. And they don't have the type of tools we do today. Fire is a big problem. Grew up down there, so not far from it. But in the dry season, there's always fire. And that would burn any of the Seminole War Force up. But it's just a matter, again, of the geology driving the situation. The dugout canoes are really heavy. They were heavy to put to any type of portage with those are heavy. So, I mean, you're talking about uh, a maximum effort there. Okay, Zach, you've written this book on Florida sports. What's your day job? Senior Curator of Education and History at the Museum of Arts and Sciences in Daytona Beach, which is an American-accredited museum, which only 4% of museums are in the country. And we're a Smithsonian affiliate. We're about 135,000 square feet. We have one of the largest collections of historical Florida landscapes in the world, uh, the most significant as well, close to 3,000. Lots of seminal images, put it that way, uh, seminals and the Everglades in the collection on display right now. Right now, also a lot of Civil War images from Harper's Weekly. So it's really quite an amazing museum. It's got collections from all over the world. And other than your book, you do get out to talk about the forts with the public. I do a lot of talks on the forts as well, and I wrote a book on Florida forts, the ones that you can go see. So it's sort of like a travel book, the ones you can go and see, but with a little more history than you would find on the internet, that's what I hope, <laughs> and a little more in-depth. And it starts in Jacksonville and goes all the way around. And the way I got into the forts was because of these paintings that were in the collection. When we had some of them up, I noticed there's a lot of these forts. I didn't realize these artists would come down as tourists in the Gilded Age and would paint, you know, the Castillo, and they'd paint Fort Matanzas, and they'd paint Fort Zachary Taylor, and they'd paint Fort Jefferson and Fort Pickens. And so I said it might be a kind of a neat, you know, neat angle to do a history talk on. Let me see how many forts there were. So when I started redoing it seven, eight years ago, I realized, holy mackerel, there's like 400 forts. The Summer War forts make your head spin around, and I, I wish I knew them all. But I, you just, it's like impossible to know them all or, you know, no history of all of them and exactly what happened. So I pick and choose the ones that you could go and see, which were now Fort King in Ocala, which is a replica fort. And I did Fort Christmas in the book. I didn't do Fort Foster, but um, maybe in the second edition, I'll add some of those as well. Because I know they're trying to build a replica Fort Fulton now as well. Now at the museum, MOAS, as the acronym is, there is a long-standing exhibit of Seminoles and the Everglades in art. How long will that be staying up? 
don't know, but I think it's going to be up for quite a while longer. And that's an excellent exhibit. Many of the paintings date from about 1950 and back. And there are portraits. There's portraits of Seminoles when they were in Palm Beach. They're oil paintings. Uh, that, I can't remember the artist's name, but he premier portrait painter in Palm Beach at the time. Uh, lots of paintings of fire in the Everglades, Seminoles in dugout canoes, different styles as well. There's images of the landscapes in the Everglades and of the certain type of animals that you will find. So it's a really fantastic exhibit. There's a beautiful painting in the Masterworks Gallery of Seminole Medicine Man, really beautiful. And he's sitting on a cheeky and in the background is how sort of this monochromatic of a river. So really interesting as well. It's a great exhibit. The whole museum's fantastic. So it's called Seminole in the Everglades. If you love Florida history, whole museum of like 25,000 square feet of painting will speak to you. And most of these artists came here as, as tourists. And these paintings go back to the 1830s and onward up. A lot of them from the 90s. The oldest painting is the City Gates of St. Augustine, 1834, by a man named Chapin in watercolor. We don't know much about the artist. He paints the City Gates of St. Augustine as a Roman ruin with a slight background of the in the background. It's real. So some of these paintings and these artists were historic preservation by St. Augustine. So they can go back and look, oh boy, that's what that looked like. And uh, we can reconstruct that just from the painting. So. If you love Florida history, this is a must. So we have an entire gallery on that. There's one room all depicting just Seminoles in the Everglades. Matter of fact, when you walk in, just a huge mural of the Everglades that represents all this in the time of day of the Everglades. So check the website to make sure for the hours because sometimes there's special events and things like that. But definitely checking the website's important. MOAS.org. The book is 13 chapters. It's about 130 some odd pages. If you like the way I speak, you'll like the book as well. The book is, you can purchase that online. Very simple. FloridaForts.com. It's a whopping $15. <laughs> Here's the thing that's pretty crazy. You can learn so much about the general history of Florida just from the forts. And that's sort of the aim of the book is learning about Florida history just through the book because you'll learn about the Endicott period when they upgraded the coastal fortifications around 1898. You'll learn about some of these Civil War battles that happened in Pensacola. You'll learn about how they set up these summer war forts. These are all forts you can go and see, and they may be just day trips from where you live. They're all state parks or national parks and all be and wealthy. You go to Fort Clinch, you sit out there on that top gun deck and the vista, remarkable. Same with Fort Jefferson, exactly. I mean, you just name it. You go out there like, gosh, this is a beautiful place. Wow. And you can feel the history. You get the feeling of old Florida when you're out at the... And that's what I love. I love that feeling of old Florida, man. That just, that just speaks to my soul. I guess I should have asked sooner. What's your background in this field? My background, I have degrees from Florida State University, uh, history degrees from uh, University of Central Florida, and Nova Southeastern University. Zach Zacharias, our go-to man on Florida's forts. Thanks for joining us for the Seminole Wars. Thanks for having me on. This is really awesome. I really appreciate being on. It's been a lot of fun. I love talking forts. I wish I knew everything. It's just a massive topic. I wish I could know every fort, but that's a huge endeavor. You know what? The more you learn, the more you realize how much you don't know. History is important. Sometimes you don't want to repeat those lessons. So it's important for everybody to know history so you don't repeat the mistakes of the past for obvious reasons. And it's also important for historic preservation because you gain an appreciation for historic preservation. If you enjoyed this show, please take a moment to like us on Facebook at Seminole Wars Foundation. Leave a review on iTunes or your favorite podcast provider. Your reviews and comments help new listeners discover us and help us keep the show going. Visit our website at www.seminolewars.us 
for blogs, articles, news, books, events, membership information, and how to subscribe to this podcast. We'll be back soon with a new episode of the Seminole Wars podcast. The Seminole Wars Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit organization dedicated to preservation, education, and publication of Seminole Wars history throughout the state of Florida. This podcast is copyrighted. The Seminole Wars Foundation 2022. All rights reserved. Front bumper music, The Devil's Garden. Roast em, provided by kind permission of Rita Youngman. Back bumper music, Second Seminole Win by Jed Merrim and Ricky Pittman, courtesy of Ricky Pittman. All rights reserved.